Hello, everybody. This is the Crux True Survival Stories, and I'm your host, Casey McIntosh, joined with co-host Julie Henningsen. How are you guys doing today? How are you doing, Julie? Doing great. Today, we're going to talk about Jamie Mosh, lost in the Everglades. When Jamie Mosh became separated from his hunting buddies in 2009, he was left with no food or water and virtually no protection from the elements. Mosh relied on wilderness survival skills and sheer determination to survive four days alone in the Everglades. He was able to catch raw catfish and bullfrogs, yum, as sustenance, and found shelter beneath some mangrove trees at night. One of his most harrowing moments came when he stepped into some quicksand and subsequently lost all his gear. There you have it. Do you want to spend some days in the Everglades? Sounds exciting, right, Julie? I don't know. Losing all your gear in quicksand, definitely exciting. I don't know <laughs> if I'm ready to sign up for that. <laughs> right. Just think about all the stuff that lives in the Everglades. Can you even imagine all the critters, like the snakes and the insects and everything? It's such an environment that I am completely unfamiliar with. Florida is the state I've spent the least amount of time with, and I've traveled the U.S. quite a bit. Uh, yeah, I can't imagine it. Yeah, so I was going to just give you some information about the Everglades because like you, I've never been to Florida. Well, I don't know if you've been to Florida. I've never even been there. So it's completely, totally different terrain than what I'm used to. The Florida Everglades are an extremely large expanse of tropical wetlands in the U.S., state of Florida. The region begins in Orlando with the Kissimmee River that leads to the shallow lake Okeechobee. It's only nine feet deep. In the spring, the water leaving the lake forms a 60-mile-wide river, and it's 100 miles long. So it's just like a slough. It's just water, water, water. I mean, that's a lot of water. Can you even imagine a 60-mile-wide river? Like, that blows my mind right there. Yeah, that's... And it's shallow, and it's warm. It's probably ideal habitat for all kinds of critters. Oh, and bacteria, too. It's probably a microbiologist's dream. <laughs> uh, who knows what's growing in there? Yeah, no, like slimy stuff. Probably a lot of eels. So fun, right? Uh, yeah. You know, and it's over this huge limestone shelf all the way to Florida Bay, which is at the end of the state. The weather in the Everglades goes through a range of weather patterns. And I had no idea, but they actually have a dry season, which is in the winter. The size of the Everglades is 7,600 square miles or 1.5 million acres. And the highest elevation is only so 20 it's big. Feet. It's huge. And it's only the highest point. Guess what the highest point is? I'm just, I want to know what you think. Well, I think I just heard you say 20 feet. Oh, That's, you did. I could be wrong. <laughs> I should have held my tongue and had you guess. But yes, 20 feet above sea level, which is not very much. I mean, that's crazy to think about. I don't even really think about us being at that high of an elevation relative to like Colorado or something like that. But can you imagine 20 feet is the highest point? That's mind blowing yeah. to me. That's so flat. Yeah. Compared to what we're so, used to out here. Right. And one point that I'd like to make is that when you have no elevation changes, it's really hard to get a bearing on where you are because everything is from the flatland. You're not looking like up or down hills or it's hard to get perspective when you're just on an expanse of flat. Right. No topographic landmarks makes it really disorienting. Right. I'm sure. 
So Everglades State Park is one of the largest wetlands in the world. And the Everglades, again, as we were mentioning before, it's full of plant species. Uh, and some of the species that are there are only there and not anywhere else in the world. There are well, three, that's cool. Yeah, right? There's 360 different kinds of birds. There's manatees. There's also bottlenose dolphins, which is crazy. Um, American crocodile and Florida panther. Who knew? Ooh. And then this is something that I found super interesting. The Burmese python. Have you heard of these? I've heard of them, but I have to admit, I didn't realize they were anywhere in the U.S. Yes. I don't know how they ended up in the area, but they're a big problem because they don't have anything above them in the food chain. So they just eat other animals. They're a predator among predators. And they're also like six to nine feet long. They're flipping huge. Yeah. Uh, they have knife-like teeth in their mouth and they're not venomous. But if they bite you, they're going to like shred you to pieces, basically. That's what I understood. Yeah, that is terrifying. <laughs> right? I know. Um, Everglades National Park contains the largest contiguous stand of mangroves that are protected in the Western Hemisphere. And so mangroves are these giant tree systems that have impenetrable root systems and they can survive in salty environments. They actually clean the water and provide shelter for birds during the dry season and marine organisms. But they also reduce erosion from waves and storms from hurricanes and whatnot, because they're basically the first line of defense, which is interesting. Yeah. The temperatures are ranging from 65 degrees or 18 degrees Celsius in January to above 90 degrees in July. Again, the dry season occurs during the winter from November until April, and the wet season is May through October. So this is an interesting fact for you being from the Seattle area. The Everglades average 60 inches of rain each year, which is double the amount of rain that Seattle gets. Oh, that's very interesting. Yeah. Although I'll and say it, most Seattleites will tell you we don't get a lot of rain. We just get it a lot. So there's always a fine mist, but there's never much in terms of quantity. So not too surprising. Yeah. But the things that's also interesting about that, 70% of the rainfall is during the wet season. So that's only a portion of the year. And so when it is raining, it's like a faucet where the water is just pummeling down. Have you ever been in a rainstorm like that before, Julie? I mean, I have, but not often. The fact that I've ever been in it, it makes it memorable when you just feel like you're standing in a shower and it's coming down in that kind of volume. It's yeah. When I was in college, I went to North Carolina and lived on this island off the coast for a summer. Anyway, the storms were like that because it was on the Outer Banks. And so when it would rain, also, you could never see the storm coming because you're out in the middle of the ocean. Sunny, in the next moment, it's full-on downpour, more than if you were stepping into the shower. It's really mm. impressive. Yeah. So it's almost actually like stepping into a car wash minus the soap. <laughs> yeah, or just because... having a bucket dumped over your head. <laughs> yes. Um, I used to always see scenes in movies where it was raining like ridiculously hard sheets of water and think like, oh, that's not realistic until I was in a rainstorm like that. And I realized, actually, yes, it is. Yeah. Good times. So during yeah. the, the dry season, there's really not very much rainfall, obviously. And the humidity is not unsurprisingly low. There are some um, times when there are fires, like I was mentioning, 
in May of 2022, there were three active fires in the Everglades burning 5,650 acres. So I guess not any area is safe from wildfires, even the, one of the wettest areas in the world. There's 671,000 acres that make up the Everglades wildlife management area that are open for hunters. So the Everglades being the wetlands with lots of sawgrass and islands make hunting for deer pretty difficult because you're going from wet to dry, wet to dry. Um, some people hunt by walking levees that border the canals and wade out to an island and just basically wait for animals to walk by. Others hunt in boats or buggies during the dry season. They use ATVs. And apparently hey, back, I others hunt on boats, buggies, or during the dry season with ATVs. And back in the old days, hunters would use canoes and pull them out into the water and stay on islands for a few weeks. They would just go out there for long hunting trips. And at that point, people were killing basically what they could and selling it and probably making some of them making a living that way. Hunters that draw permits for alligators use airboats and they go out at night and they use the spotlight to locate the gators because the gator's eyes glow red in the light, which I thought is interesting. I would imagine yeah. that it's easier to spot them, but then you have to actually kill them in the dark, which would be a little bit harrowing, I think. I agree. Yeah, that would be intense. Follow the red eyes. <laughs> yeah. But duck hunting is apparently another sport that's pretty common in the glades. And those Burmese pythons I was telling you about, they usually live on the islands. And there are some other exotic snakes on in the glades and not necessarily specifically in the context of hunting. But according to Deer Hunting Magazine, they were released illegally by their owners when they got too big for their cages. People own these exotic snakes and then they just let them out. And that actually happened. To, isn't that crazy? That yeah, happened, that is. That happened here a few years ago. Somebody let out this alligator or a crocodile into the, the Flathead River. And then oh. some kids were like whacking it with a stick or something. Anyway. Oh, wow. Yeah. That would be pretty scary, though. You're like in a Montana river and you see a crocodile or an alligator. I mean, it was a small one, but still. Still, yeah. It would send you definitely questioning your reality at that moment. At least right. it would me. <laughs> You're like, where am I again? Yeah. Adjacent to Everglades is a 711,000-acre Big Cypress National Preserve, which has swamps and cabbage palms, cypress, oaks, pines, and prairies. And um, in this area, there's deer and hogs and black bears, panthers, and quails. The bears and the, pa the panthers are off-limits to hunters. So sorry to be so long-winded about the Everglades, but I literally never had done any reading about them before. So I found myself really interested in this completely different world. Yeah, it sounds so unique. It sounds like another planet. I'd love to yeah. visit sometime. I know. It'd be really cool. And actually, the Everglades National Park has a lot of different activities, and there's a lot of kayaking and things. So it would be pretty cool. But a lot buggier than what we're used to in Montana would be my guess. Anyway, so we're going to talk about Jamie Bosch now. He grew up in the upstate New York, and he lived in the city, but he spent a lot of time recreating in the outdoors doing a ton of hunting and fishing and camping. Um, he was living in Fort Myers at the time of the story. November 16th, 2009, Jamie randomly met these two wild boar hunters who offered to take him out for a day of guided hunting. And he decided to, to go with these guys. He literally grabbed his gear and went to the, their cabin in the Everglades. <laughs> like, this sounds like the beginning of a murder mystery. 
you're just like randomly going with these backwoodsy, no offense, uh, renting people who live in the Everglades and you're like, yeah, I'll go spend the night with you at your cabin. Um, Anyway, that's... Meet me at my remote cabin. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) You're fat. Sounds like a plan. (laughs) Exactly. So that's what he does. He gets his gear, goes out to the cabin. He stays out overnight and they plan to get up at sunrise and start hunting early in the morning. Then in the morning, the truck doesn't start. So these guys are like, well, we're going to be working on the truck. We're not going to go boar hunting. And Jamie was like, well, I'm not going to sit around and wait for you to dink around with your truck. I'm just going to go. They start now. I'm just going to go start hunting. So we asked the guys like, all right, where where do I go? And they said, walk a mile down this road right by their cabin and then take a left hand turn into the Everglades. So that's what he did. He had no experience in the environment at all no knowledge of the everglades whatsoever uh, and then he's walking into this tall sharp grass palmetto is a type of grass and this was a drug quote from jamie he said i never saw woods like these woods before this is something like you see in hell think of the worst jungle you can ever imagine and times it by 10 and then just keep going into it was <laughs> completely undeterred I was just like, I can't even imagine it. Have you ever walked off of a path and you're like, I hope I can find my way back that direction? Um, I don't know. I've had that feeling before. I can't specifically give you an example of the time I felt like that. But like, I know I've had that experience before. And like walking into the Everglades with no knowledge of where you're going feels to me like getting lost on purpose. I'm just saying like, it makes my skin crawl a little bit thinking about that. Yeah, I've walked into some very dense forests, like in the Pacific Northwest, where I'm from, where, you you know, you're 10 feet off the trail. And unless you turn around and look back and consciously make an effort to keep track of where you're going, it's a quick, short amount of time before you're completely turned around. This is probably even worse. Yeah, like everything blends into itself and it all looks the same. So, yeah. He came prepared for the day. He had water. He had all of his survival gear, including a compass, his cell phone, a rifle. And he didn't know that his compass was broken, actually. He had one that wasn't working, which is not very helpful. He walked through a lot of water and deep vegetation. It was a pretty hot day. He saw some gators and snakes, but he was out looking for wild pigs and he didn't see any wild pigs. And he just kept going deeper and deeper and deeper. And then eventually he got so tired from the drain, which I would imagine you're going in and out of the water. Every Even when you're on the land, it's not like you're easily walking on a trail or something. You're just like bushwhacking the entire time. And so he decides to take a nap. So he sits down under a tree. And at this point, he has no concern at all. I don't know what's going on in his head right now, but I didn't sense that there was any panic at this time. So he sits down under the tree to take a short nap. And then he wakes up and it's dark. Mm. totally pitch black so at this point he finds out oh my flashlight is dead because initially he was thinking oh i'll just walk out in the dark with my flashlight okay. which is another yeah. crazy thought can you imagine like how many miles has he gone at this point how far has he traveled and it was probably not a straight line and in any case his cell phone is also dead and everything mm. is waterlogged from humidity and walking through water so he basically has nothing at this point except for his clothes on his back and his boots so again, broken compass, dead phone, and dead flashlight. He must have had matches because he started a fire. Uh, 
And he's like, I'll just, I'll just spend the night here. I'll hunker down. And he was like, oh, well, this is kind of a nice spot and didn't indicate any concern for being lost at that point, despite all of the stuff. But he did fire off the distress signal that hunters apparently do. So the way that that goes is you fire off three shots fast, three slow, and then three fast. Hmm. And so if you ever have a gun and you, you're in distress, that's the code, Julie. Put it gotcha. in your back pocket. <laughs> so is that like SOS in Morris code, I wonder? I don't know. Oh, I've never maybe. heard that before. That's really interesting. We should look that up. Yeah, we could look that up. Somebody shot back. And that was his plan. Like, oh, somebody will shoot, hopefully. And then I'll just follow that sound and go out that direction the next day. So he made some mark on the ground so he could remember in the morning what direction to go. When he didn't show back up that night, the hunters that he initially was going to go out with, they notified the authorities. Oh, that's good. So they were looking out for him. Yeah, they weren't as crazy as you might imagine. His family was made aware of the fact that he was missing. And I'm assuming the search started at that point. He woke up early in the morning because, of course, it's freezing. You have to realize that there's a lot of humidity. And he was already halfway wet by walking through all of that water the day before. Yeah. Um, and he had no food or water. And he just was like, I need to get out of here. And the tall grass and vibes, of course, make travel really difficult. And it's really hard to maintain a straight path because even if you're like, I'm going over to that tree, you can't walk a direct line from one location to another because there's a hundred obstacles in the way. So you might have to go into the water and then back onto the land. And then, you know, there's the vines are too thick and you have to completely divert from the direction you started. And so you don't even know if at the point where you get to the tree, if that was the tree you were initially intending to go to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, again, given the lack of elevation changes, he had a hard time finding a point of reference and started just wandering aimlessly. And literally, you could walk forever. I don't know what the right method is, but typically they you know, stay in one place. But if you're out in the Everglades, you're just you could literally walk forever and ever, like days. Mm -hmm. um, so at first he was, of course, out to hunt. And then he starts thinking like, oh, maybe I'm going to be hunted because I'm out here and, you know. That's another thing that I'm sure that you're thinking about. Oh, I'm thinking about that python. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I didn't see anything that indicated that he saw any of those, but I cannot imagine anything more terrifying. Well, maybe I could, but that's pretty freaking terrifying. Yeah. The fangs ripping you to shreds. He ended up staying another night. And on the second day, he was walking through the water and the mud started to suck to his boots. And he was in mud up to his waist. He was kicking and moving out of anxiety, of course, and then that made the situation worse and worse and worse. And thankfully, he was able to grab onto this tree that was going across the water that he was walking in. And he basically had his right hand holding onto the tree. His left hand, he had the gun. And he was like, if I'm going to get out of here, I have to have both hands. And so he chucks his rifle, and then it ends up going into the water. He was trying to throw it to the shore, and it didn't make it. Oh, so then... Awful. He has to take his pants off and everything else and exits without his boots on because his boots are stuck to the bottom of the river or the, the waterway. And all of his stuff, he's mostly naked at this point. He has a tank top and like long underwear on and that's all he has. And he wow. said, I lost everything in the blink of an eye. I was just doing some reading about quicksand and I was really interested about it. And I'm just going to read the this excerpt from Scientific America about quicksand 
for some extra education. Quicksand is a mixture of sand and water or sand and air that looks solid but becomes unstable when disturbed by an additional stress. In normal sand, grains are packed tightly together to form a rigid mass with about 25 to 30 percent voids between the grains filled with air or water. Because many sand grains are elongate rather than spherical, loose packing of the grains can produce sand in which voids make up 30 to 70 percent of the mass. The arrangement is similar to a house of cards in that the space between the cards is significantly greater than the space occupied by the cards. The sand collapses or becomes quick when additional force is loaded. Vibration or the upward migration of water overcomes the friction holding the grains together. Most quicksand occurs in settings where there are natural springs either at the base of an alluvial fan, cone-shaped bodies of sand and gravel formed by rivers flowing from mountains, along riverbanks, or on benches at low tide. In such cases, the loose packing is maintained by upward movement of water. Quicksand does occur in deserts, but only very rarely, where loosely packed sand occurs, such as the downwind side of dunes, and the sinking is limited to a few centimeters because the air voids are expelled, the grains are too densely packed for any further compaction. Does that kind of make sense? It sounds like there's actually more potential space because the grains are further apart, and so it collapses in inward. Does that make sense? Yeah, the house of cards analogy makes sense. Yeah. So kind of terrifying. Yeah, it sure is. So then he makes it to day three and he hasn't had anything to eat or drink. And he wasn't wanting to drink swamp water. He only drank twice over his four-day ordeal. He found some fresh water in a spring and there were some guppies in it. And so he used his shirt to basically capture the guppies and he was eating those. And he actually captured an eel from the same spring and he just ate it. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yum. Yum. <laughs> uh, wasn't able to make another fire, but he tried with a broken watch and a diamond earring, which is always good to have a diamond earring when you're lost. Oh, yeah. There you go. That's creative. Yeah. At a press conference at Physicians Regional Medical Center in Florida, Jamie said that he could only think about how cold he was and he couldn't sleep at night. He would just sit there and shiver and shiver. So you're not sleeping at all, which really helps with your decision making as well. Right. And you're shivering, which just eats up any sort of nutritional metabolic fuel that you have. Right. Which is going to shorten your time without food or water. And there was some mention about Jamie seeing a black panther that was stalking him for hours, which that's crazy. I don't know how that wouldn't haunt you forever. It was said as if it was like an, a side note. Oh, and by the way, he was also stalked by a panther. <laughs> By the way, it was the least of his concerns at this point. <laughs> you always hear stories about how people start hallucinating when they haven't been eating and you're not sleeping and like your perception of reality and what's happening. Maybe some things are not as heightened as they would be otherwise. I don't know. It's hard to say. Let's hope we don't yeah, ever or, find out. Yeah. Or maybe you're seeing that Black Panther and thinking, oh, he's here to help me. Here's my spirit <laughs> animal leading me out. You never know what the mind plays tricks on you in that type of situation. Yeah. I mean, really, my mind plays tricks on me in any situation. So I can't even imagine. True. So on day four, he was completely covered in bug bites, which, you know, that's a whole nother thing. His skin was injured from the sharp grass. He's still wandering around and he's on the lookout for predators. And then he's walking and he twists his ankle on some brush 
and he dislocated his patella, which is it's a great time to do that. I've uh, that's happened to me before when I'm hi- when I was hiking. I can relate. Where were you when this happened, and what did you do? Oh, I was in. It was when I was in college. I was on a semester abroad in South America. I was backpacking to the border of Ecuador and Peru. It was like a four-day backpack from a remote Amazonian village. Carrying a heavy pack, I slipped on a wet log and fell backward and dislocated my patella. How far were you from where you needed to be? Well, we were days from where we were headed, but it was the first day of the backpack. So for me, it was a turnaround. And well, my patella reduced. We reduced the patella. And then I turned around and hobbled back and sat that one out while the rest of my group went ahead. Knee swelled to the size of a a cantaloupe, just full of fluid. I had to get it aspirated in an ER in Quito, Ecuador. But that was like weeks later once we were out. That sounds incredibly brutal. Just picturing you with your knee hobbling with a giant backpack on your back, that sounds like a horrible experience. Yeah, it was seared in my memory for sure. (laughs) Well, Jamie knew that that was going to happen to him. He knew that his knee was going to swell up a lot and he actually reduced it himself. Mm. Fortunately, it's easy to reduce. It's not difficult. In fact, most of the time it's going to do it on its own. So that's good. That That's the right thing to do is let it let it go back to its home. Yeah. Versus like having a shoulder dislocation in this environment. That would be so much worse. Yeah. So much worse. He felt pretty desperate at that point. And, you know, his friends and family were hoping and praying he was still alive. He's out there just lying on the ground <laughs> thinking about all of his loved ones and what if I don't make it. But he also did say, Quote, I knew I was making it out just for my mother. I was making it out. Plus, I wanted to show everyone that I know that I could make it out. <laughs> well, there you go. Whatever motivates you. I like the mother right. part. Yeah. That's a, that's a solid motivator. <laughs> Hopefully our kids will say things like that about us someday. Yeah. Yeah. So on the fourth day, he saw some helicopters flying above and he tried to climb up a tree to increase his visibility, which was completely pointless. And then as he's kind of lying there, he heard someone calling his name and he made contact with rescues from Spo County at 11 a.m. on Friday. And he just he started to cry. Of course, he didn't really have much for tears because he was pretty dehydrated and he only he thought it was Tuesday. So this was Friday. And he got lost wow. on Monday. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's wild. So, so that I guess sometimes perception actually protect his perception, which was not accurate, may have been somewhat protective because he didn't really know how long he had been gone or lost, which is yeah, crazy. He, he's probably thinking, well, you know, I can certainly survive at least five days, not realizing it had already been five. We're only on day two. So that puts you in a good state of mind to push on. Right. Well, he felt bad about what he put his family and friends through. And he said that this experience led him to appreciate his friends and family more and just like, you know, tell people that he appreciated them saying, hey, I love you. And just understanding the importance of the people in your life, because you know, anything can happen to anyone at any time. And so he also understood that he needed to have more preparation in future outings. He was taken to the hospital and he was only kept for a couple of days and then he was released without any major injuries. 
Unfortunately, Jamie Mosh died unexpectedly in 2013, and I didn't find anything about his cause of death. His obituary mm. stated, Jamie Mosh, age 34, of Elmira, New York, passed away suddenly on Saturday, March 9, 2013, in North Fort Myers, Florida. Jamie was born with hunting and fishing in his blood on February 22, 1979, in Elmira, New York. When he wasn't hunting, fishing, or breaking hearts, he was able to graduate from Southside High School open his own construction company, and work as a model. He will always be remembered by his huge heart, good looks, and an ability to make people laugh. So I thought that was nice. It's nice to have a point of reference for who people are. It's unfortunate that he didn't survive very much longer after the story took place. He sounds like a good guy. He sounds like somebody you'd want to spend time with, an interesting character. Right. Yeah, I totally agree. I think this story kind of sums up things that we already know, but Number one is just knowing the environment that you're traveling to, having some idea of where you're going is obviously very helpful. And just thinking about things like making sure that you have food for more than one day, making sure that you have a couple of ways to start a fire. Obviously, in this environment, it would be really helpful to have some dry bags so you can keep some like critical things dry. Do you have any mm -hmm. other thoughts? Well, picturing him making his way through that dense vegetation, it reminds me of I spent a couple summers cruising timber when I worked as a field forester in some dense forests. And the, what we would do to make sure that we stayed in the, the same line and were always oriented is pull out that compass, uh, visualize a tree or an object off in the distance, lock in on it. And then make your way towards it in whatever sort of zigzaggy fashion you have to, because you're not going to be able to walk directly to it. And then when you get to that tree, you stop and do the same thing again. Pull out the compass, lock in on something off in the distance, and don't take your eyes off it till you're on it. And kind of a reading by compass reading that way can at least help you feel like you're moving in a straight line. That is, <laughs> if you know the direction of the straight line you want to move into. Yeah, I think what's tough about this kind of thing is it's like you're in an ocean of land. You know, it's it's like any direction that he could have gone, unless he knew exactly where he came from, is just complete aimless wandering. Even if he did know or think he knew where he came from, he probably wasn't right about it. It's so disorienting. Mm -hmm. And I guess what we have now is that technology has advanced so much that we have better GPS. In an instance where you're in a location like this, it might be worthwhile to have a GPS tracker. But then again, it's like your batteries can die. So no matter how prepared you are, obviously things can go wrong, but that might be really helpful. Yeah. In this day and age, you know, there's there's a little excuse for going on an adventure like that without something like an inReach or a plebe or spot beacon or just something. The technology is there, even if it just lives in the bottom of your pack. True. For sure. I don't have one of those, but maybe someday. Maybe they want to sponsor us. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for listening. And I'm tuning in next week for another episode of the Crux True Survival Stories. And if you enjoy our podcast, please leave us a review. We'd really appreciate it. Or tell a friend. That would be great, too. Thank you.